Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Andrew Rice, a contributing editor at New York Magazine, which is one of my favorite news sources. Also a former staff writer at The Hill, another one of my favorite news sources. So we're two for two here. And he's finally the author of the recently published book, The Year That Broke America, which we will be discussing today. Andrew Rice, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I thought that before we got to the year 2000, which, of course, is the focus of your book, that it might make sense for us to start a little bit before that in the 1990s, which I think in a lot of ways were sort of an interesting, I don't know, interlude, if you will. Uh, I was someone who became politically conscious actually before that in, in the 80s. And uh, having lived through the 80s and uh, 2000s and beyond, I felt at least like the 90s were this strange period where the stakes seemed a little lower and maybe things were kind of working out, not quite the end of history exactly, but I, I wanted to get your take on the, on the weirdness, I guess, in a way of the, of the 90s before we get to the year that broke America. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the end of history. I mean, Sir Frank Fukuyama kind of has to wear that now uh, <laughs> yeah. for, for, for life is his uh, premature judgment. And, but, but, but I think that really, you know, that that declaration was was reflective of a of a more prevalent attitude at the time. He was an outlier in you know thinking that history, or at least the sort of Hegelian idea of history, in which you had these two uh, opposing forces. You know, during the twentieth century, it was communism and liberal democracy uh, going against one another in in eternal conflict. Um, you know, he wasn't alone in thinking that. The end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the incredibly, I mean, it's, you know, hard to, to remember it now, but the sort of the incredibly surprising and optimistic kind of turn of events that just ha came out of nowhere and, and ended the Cold War and gave us what appeared at that time to be a kind of unipolar world in which liberal democracy, for all of its flaws and, and imperfections, liberal democracy seemed to be the, the, the dominant uh, form of government that, that every society was trying to move towards. This was taken as a given that, that this, this was kind of the, the way that history was going to continue to progress. You know, I, I was thinking about, you know, it, you know, when you asked this question, I was thinking about last night watching Joe Biden give um, the State of the Union address. And in my book, I, I, I make uh, sort of a, a, a reference to the, the year 2000 State of the Union address, Bill Clinton's last State of the Union address, where he stood on a, you know, the, the same podium in the House of Representatives and declared that 
globalization was the central reality of our time. And he rhapsodized about the, quote, the revolution that is tearing down barriers and building new networks among nations and individuals and economies and cultures. This idea that, you know, the world was coming together was, was, was very much a part of the zeitgeist in the 1990s. I remember, you know, in my, you know, in my own sort of youthful days as a, as a college student in the, in the mid 1990s, uh, getting a, a URL pass and going around Europe with a friend of mine and, and really just like looking at the map and thinking we could go anywhere. And so we chose to go to Albania because Albania <laughs> had previously been the, the absolute most, uh, you know, her, mo- most hermetically sealed nation in the entire world. So, so we, so we designed an entire kind of month long European rail journey with the idea that eventually we would end up in Tirana. So we did end up in Tirana. And, uh, suffice it to say, Tirana was you know, uh, was, was not, was not in great condition at that time. But, but I think that the point is that, you know, in the, in the year 2000, you know, the world really was our oyster and our, I mean, America and young people and, and, and really the entire world. Cause it, you, I don't think that the, the idea of this, uh, you know, eternal clash and tension among, uh, peoples and civilizations, I think that was a little discredited at the time. People thought that, that we were all going to end up coming together. Yeah. And clearly uh, events of just uh, very recent events suggested that uh, that was uh, overly optimistic, to say the least. But <laughs> so, so get, getting back to the, the year that broke America, you, you pegged that as the year 2000. Of course, it's a nice round number, right? But it, it was more than just a presidential election year, right? There, there were things that made it different in your view, made it, made it special, made it a real break point, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's, there's sort of two strands that run throughout the entire book and, and I'm sure we'll talk about them in greater length in a, in a few minutes, but you know, one strand is the, is the presidential election, which will end up being determined by uh, the smallest margin imaginable um, as, certainly the smallest margin in, in, in presidential history, but you know, re- really, it's such a slim margin that you know anything could have could have swung it one way or another, and history really could have turned out differently. Uh, at the same time, and actually in the same place, Florida, where the recount was going on, you had the the nine eleven pilots training. At that time, nobody knew what they had planned, um, but but in fact, they were going to change the world, uh, and I think set America and geopolitics on a, on a different course. So that's kind of the central thesis of the book. But there's also, you know, at the same time, there are all sorts of other things happening in the culture. The seeds of the present day are really being sown during that time period. This is like the advent of reality television. This is the high point, as I pointed out earlier, of, of you know, American geopolitical dominance. This was a time in which, you know, the U.S. had trillion dollar surpluses, uh, you know, stretching far into the future in which politics, uh, was was considered to be kind of a low stakes game and that um and that you know the the republicans and democrats really had sort of converged you know in, in a in a in a center position but meanwhile all these all these things were kind of quietly coming into the the shape of the future was kind of quietly coming into view i point out my 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 opening chapter 
of my book involves the Y2K celebrations, you know, um, the, 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 the celebrations of December 31st, 1999, the passage of the, of the, of, of the world from, you know, one millennium into the next, which was this great moment of historical convergence, uh, you know, really an ex- exemplary moment in, in sort of the history of globalization that we were talking about before. Uh, a lot of people predicted that there was going to be, you know, because of a of a computer glitch, that there was going to be this sort of uh, uh, that there was going to be this apocalypse as a as a result of it. This was the so called Y two K bug. So my opening chapter is really about the 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 celebration of this passage in time to a round number 2000 and and the and the accompanying dread that something terrible is about to happen now i also point out that december 31st 1999 ended up being historically significant for another reason uh which is that december 31st 1999 was the day that boris yeltsin in russia uh shockingly announced that he was resigning and handing power to a little known caretaker named Vladimir yeah. Putin. So if you read the if you read the millennium the the 112000 uh front page of the New York Times uh you know it has a giant headline that says 1100 at the top and pictures of people celebrating and then on the left side of the of the front page there's a a large story that says Yeltsin resigns um and uh I think now in retrospect we can say that this was a that this was a you know, a historically significant date for, for, for more reasons than just simply it was, it was the flip of a, a couple digits to a round number. In fact, it opened a new geopolitical era. Absolutely. So when you say it was the year that broke America, in, in what, obviously that, that would suggest that America is it, it, in fact broken. In what sense do you, do you see America is, is broken in the 21st century, maybe in ways that it wasn't, Prior to that, I mean, I think that the primary way in which I think the book ha- it makes this argument, I think, in a in a variety of different ways, and and um, th- you know, sort of talking about ways in which uh, the American institutions have broken down, but maybe in the the, the most significant one is uh, American trust in its political institutions, its institutions of of authority, whether it's Informational authority from the news media, uh, whether it's uh, the authority of our our elected governments, whether it's our belief that our elections are in fact factually correct, that the that the outcome of these elections uh, is correct, and that the president elected is legitimate. Um, these were all things that were sort of unquestioned. Um, in the in the 20th century, for the, for the most part, I mean, there there were there were moments at which you, uh, elections, the validity of of elections were challenged, but for the most part, there, there was never really a, a, a serious doubt that uh, even presidents who were elected very narrowly, like John F. Kennedy yeah. in 1960 or Richard Nixon in 1968, a really serious doubt that those individuals were actually elected presidents. Um, that this this changed in 2000 and never really got fixed there's as i point out at the end of the book you know al gore supporters never believed that george bush was legitimately the president uh you know when the next election change in power happened uh 
the, the Republicans, many of the Republicans never believe that Barack Obama was legitimately elected. They spread a, a racist lie that he was born in another country. Um, and that the, 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 the primary, uh, person, uh, amplifying that racist lie ended up becoming the next president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that president and then that, and then, and then the Democrats in that election, um, spent a tremendous amount of time during the opening years of the of the Trump administration uh, trying to demonstrate that Trump couldn't possibly have been uh, fair and square elected and uh, because because people supported his politics, but rather it was actually some kind of secret Russian inter- interference uh, propaganda campaign that had that uh, gotten a bunch of people in Wisconsin and Michigan to to uh, to vote against Hillary Clinton. Um, and, 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 and then ultimately you see the culmination of this kind of, uh, cycle, cyclical kind of, uh, the cyclical dynamic, uh, occur in 2020 where despite, you know, where, where the, the, the stop the steal, and I put that in, in air quotes, uh, movement ends up ultimately culminating in the, in the sack of the, of the capital, you know, all of this, I think you can trace back to a decline in trust in institutions. And that decline in trust in institutions really begins in a profound way with the 2000 election. Yeah. And, and I want to talk more about the 2000 election, but I think that's maybe the one thing that a, a lot of listeners would immediately think about when they think about 2000. But there's another story that happened that year. And, and to those of us who, who lived through it or were politically conscious, it was a huge deal. And I think probably uh, a lot of folks today aren't really aware of the impact it had then. And and uh, the way you sort of weave it through the book in terms of the impact that, uh, in, into the future as well, I want to talk a little bit about that. That's, of course, the, uh, you know what I'm talking about, the Alien Gonzalez story. And so I would, maybe you could give uh, listeners just kind of a, a short summary of what that was all about and why it was such a big deal to so many people. Well, you know, I, I and it's it's funny that you mentioned this because it's true of Elian Gonzalez, but it's true of all sorts of things that are in this book. You know, we have this term, you know, the memory hole, uh-huh. uh, which is which is which is the uh, the place where history kind of goes to be forgotten uh, as as in the present day, we're so fixated on our on our on our present day politics, it's sometimes even hard to remember what happened two years ago rather than <laughs> 22 yeah. years ago. Um, so I find myself often having to explain things that uh, to, to younger people, things that happened that seem hard to believe that people uh, don't know about them because they were such big deals at the time, but the, and were so consequential in, in different ways, but, uh, but, the, but ultimately they've just kind of been forgotten because people don't certainly don't learn about recent history in the same way that they do about, about you know, 20th century American history. So Elian Gonzalez was a, um, in, on Thanksgiving day, 1999, which is actually the opening of of my of of my book, sort of like the when I constructed the timeline for my book, that was sort of uh, you know my writing process. That was sort of the the first pin on the board was was November twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day, a couple of fishermen uh, go leave a their their home um, on the Intercoastal Waterway uh, on the east coast of of Florida and go out to go fishing. They cite a, a piece of debris in the in the 
in the ocean. It's an inner tube. And uh, clinging to that inner tube is a, is a tiny boy, five years old, um, near death. Uh, and what had happened was is that his family or his mother had uh, attempted with a group of Cuban refugees to make it to Florida by boat. Uh, there was a policy at that time, basically, that if, uh, if you were a Cuban uh, refugee and you, and you made it to dry land in, in Florida, you basically wouldn't be deported that you would be considered a, a legal American citizen and put on a fast track to citizenship. Um, they had been attracted by that opportunity as many others were. And as many others did, they had uh, encountered storms at sea and uh, almost all of them had drowned with the exception of little Elion. Uh, he was brought to shore. Uh, it was considered to be a, you know, kind of miracle by the Cuban community, the anti-Castro community in in Miami. Uh, he it was he, he was pictured in the newspapers. He was incredibly photogenic, a beautiful young kid, and um, captured the imagination of a, of a lot of people, um, including on that Thanksgiving Day, the Attorney General of the United States, uh, Janet Reno, who was from Miami, and was actually. Uh, sitting on her porch, reading the same news coverage that the that the Cubans of Miami did, this becomes significant because ultimately, what ends up happening is uh, Elian's father, who was estranged from his mother, living back in Cuba, says, uh, "Hold it! I want my son back. Uh, I want to bring him back to to live with me in Cuba. I have a good life here." Uh, Elian's uh, extended family, his. He, the the father's relatives in Miami, who from whom, with whom he had little uh, relationship, um, basically said he can't make this choice for this child. This child's mother died for to secure him freedom. The child will live here in the United States and will be free. And it, this essentially this conflict became a custody battle, a legal battle. Uh, in the courts in the United States that preoccupied the entire nation uh, and and all the cable news networks and everything uh, and 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 the news media of that time became this giant preoccupying controversy where where the two sides fought vociferously about where the child should should end up. Uh, Janet Reno, the aforementioned attorney general, who is from Miami herself intervened personally and spent an inordinate amount of time, her own time, trying to figure out how to uh, broach a solution. They were ultimately unable to broach a negotiated solution. And so on, uh, so in the early morning hours of Holy Saturday, the, the, you know, basically a few hours after the end of Good Friday in April of 2000, Janet Reno sent in uh, armed uh, border patrol agents into Little Havana uh, to seize the child by force. Uh, luckily, no one was injured. The the raid was was successful uh, in every way, except for as a uh, as a as a uh, publicity event. Um, it, it was, you know, there were photos taken of armed of armed uh, you know border patrol agents. Uh, armed with weapons in the house, taking the, seizing the child by force from the family. Uh, this became a huge political controversy. It inflamed the Cuban community in Miami, caused riots and, and all sorts of civil disobedience, and ultimately culminated in 
and here's where this ties into the to the rest of the year that broke America, ultimately culminated in a huge surge in uh, Republican voter turnout, Cuban-American Republican voter turnout in Miami in 2000 for George W. Bush, who had championed, along with the rest of the Republican Party, the cause of the of the Miami relatives. Uh, and and this ended up being one of many factors uh, that could be said to, that determined the election that, that swung that election, uh, even though the result was d- disputed, made the election as, uh, you know, a, a, you know, nar- narrowly appear to be a narrow victory for George W. Bush. Yeah, and I think that also that play I, when you were talking about that, the first thing that popped in my mind, those images are just kind of seared in my memory, certainly that that you mentioned, and it also I think connects to what you mentioned earlier about that decline in trust in government, and certainly that that inflamed an awful lot of people, as you pointed out, and this is something that we see uh, the consequences of and the growth of even uh, clearly to this day. I think that's true. And I also think that another thing, it was significant for a second reason, though, which was not just a, about about government, but it was also a very significant event in um, media history, I would say, it, in terms of the way that uh, this Elian Gonzalez controversy was covered. Uh, this was prior to this time, this is the very beginning of what we now think of as our media culture at this time this 24-hour cable news network internet driven media culture was was a brand new thing cnn had existed for a, a decade or two but msnbc and fox news were only established in around 1998 they were they were a brand new kind of entities at this time and uh and so the the kind of 24-hour news competition uh the the we now what we now think of as the familiar kind of media phenomenon where some kind of event happens a whole bunch of tv trucks show up and broadcast 24 hours a day from uh you know the site of of this you know, this was a new thing i mean they 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 called it um camp elion there was a you know basically a whole group of uh, of television news networks that just stood outside of this house in Little Havana for months on end and waited for something to happen, broadcast every little kind of twist and turn in the family's struggle. All of the members of the family became sort of what we would now recognize as kind of reality TV stars. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that reality TV itself was coming into being in, in the year 2000, this idea that you know these real life people could be uh entertainment uh for for the public was, was something that was happening and all of this actually you know th- this model the elion model the the you that you saw happening in the early parts of 2000 ends up being kind of the same playbook that ends up being used during um the the 2000 recount in florida the very same kind of uh, the very same kind of media coverage, exhaustive media coverage, outrage cycle, uh, the the use of sort of what we now recognize as sort of proto proto uh, social media uh, platforms like the Drudge Report um, and and other uh, now many now forgotten uh, social media platforms or web uh, publications that would sort of gin up uh, you know 
short-term stories and short-term storylines that would preoccupy everybody for a couple of days. This was all something that really started in 2000. It started with Elyon. It really it, it developed into, uh, you know, evolved into uh, what ended up happening with the with the recount, and it continued into into nine eleven. I mean, this idea of the what we now think you know this this crawl at the, of news at the bottom of your cable TV screen that was something that began in the Florida recount. It was kind of dusted off and used again uh, on nine eleven, and then you know the news crawl has never really gone away. This idea that we're kind of victims to this endless uh, stream of developing news events uh, that. That, that are preoccupying and engrossing, but also, you know, we now call it doom scrolling. Also, also <laughs> kind of uh, anxiety producing. Oh yeah, and 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 um, and sort of engrossing for the wrong reasons. That that really started to come into being in the year two thousand. I want to switch gears just a little bit here and move more into electoral politics and not with the not with the finalists, I guess you could say the, the Bush or thing, but with a couple of candidates who actually didn't make it to that point, starting with, well, Donald Trump, because 2000 was the year that first year that Donald Trump really seriously considered running for president. You talk about that in the book. And uh, how how serious was that initial Trump presidential run? And why do you think it ended up not working in 2000, but clearly 16 years later, you know, be being very successful? Well, I you know, when I talk about the memory hole, you know, this is this is another thing that fell down the memory hole. Uh, Donald Trump's first serious attempt to run for president came in the year 2000, not in the year 2016, um, which even Donald Trump himself uh, kind of doesn't doesn't acknowledge it uh, anymore. He he often boasts that the first time he ever ran for president, he won. No, not really. Actually, uh, along with a lot of other things that Donald Trump says, this does not check out. <laughs> um, he he really it was a serious campaign. He he attempted to run for the for the nomination of the Reform Party. The Reform Party was a you know as your as your listeners probably probably know, but not a lot of Americans know. Uh, anymore, the Reform Party was was the last kind of serious third party yeah. um, to come along in, in American presidential politics. It was a vehicle uh, for originally for Ross Perot, who ran most successfully in 1992, ran again in 1996. In the year 2000, his party still existed. It was eligible for a sizable amount of uh, federal matching funds, uh, for basically money to 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 run its campaign. Um, or for president because of Perot's uh, strong performance in the previous two elections, uh, but Perot himself was not interested in running again. So, so the party was kind of there for the taking, and and so there was a it it, it was a um, a moment for a bunch of different opportunists uh, to come along and try to turn it into their vehicle. So the two primary ones that uh, that 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 came along were uh, Donald Trump who basically was the chosen candidate of the most powerful office holder within the reform party uh Jesse the Body Ventura oh, who wow. was a, a wrestler yeah. who had run uh successfully for the uh, governorship of of Minnesota a lot of people wanted Jesse the Body Ventura to run for president in 2000 himself but but he uh declared that it was important for him to serve out his his full term as 
governor of Minnesota, and he then turned to uh, Trump, whom he knew from professional wrestling. They had originally met at a WrestleMania event. Um, And Trump uh, was basically put together a real campaign. He had a campaign manager whose name you may know. His his name was Roger Stone. Uh Uh, (laughs) And he they printed up uh, Trump campaign buttons. He went he did campaign events, a lot of them actually in Florida, because that was where Trump was living in the winter as he as he does as he does now. Um, He had a kind of what I describe as a as a as a rose garden campaign from Mar-a-Lago. But he did actually go out and do some do some campaigning. But the the real difference between yesterday and today was, you know, Trump campaign was considered kind of a joke. Uh, He went on Jay Leno. They played hail to the chief and everybody made a big joke out of it. Um, The only person who took Trump seriously at that time was was really Trump. Uh, His primary uh, opponent for the nomination was an individual. Your uh, listeners also probably know his name, Pat Buchanan. Uh, Buchanan was actually a a, a populist, nativist, uh, somebody who campaigned on the slogan America first, uh, somebody who was against trade uh, trade deals, somebody who was against foreign entanglements and who was uh, a, a for fortifying the southern border wall, you know, with actually fortifying the southern border with a fortified fence. Um, all these things may sound familiar yeah. uh, as 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 the, the Trump political platform. Uh, the irony of it is that Trump had no political platform at this time. He attacked uh, Buchanan from the left, called him a Hitler lover uh, and all sorts of other nasty names, said he said his followers were wackos and and basically said no one could ever uh, endorse these sorts of positions. (laughs) Of course, these ended up being his own political position 16 years later. Right. Uh, So so that was really ultimately what ended up happening was, you know, Trump had no platform. Uh, he had no ideological platform, but he also had no uh, social media platform. And in an era before Twitter, an era before uh, before he could access directly speak to the American public uh, and and use his uh, this technology platform to kind of captivate everyone's minds, he's very dependent on the news media to to get his message out. And the news media basically. Uh, all agreed that he was a ridiculous clown and uh, and 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 didn't really take him seriously or just kind of played it for laughs. And it became very, you know, very difficult for Trump to actually gain any traction. He dropped out. Yeah. And suggesting how much our culture changed from 2000 to 2016, certainly. Uh, I want to talk about another presidential run that got considerably further that year. One uh, sort of near and dear to my heart, because it's the first time my heart was ever really broken politically. I think a lot of people probably felt that. In fact, I know they did. And I'm talking about the presidential campaign of John McCain, who certainly uh, became a a media darling and actually came uh, reasonably close, I guess you could say, had the whole straight talk express. And uh, uh, so what what do you think led to McCain's rise in this year? And then what ended up, in your view, kind of preventing him from overcoming uh, Bush and being being the person to run against Gore in two thousand? Well, I mean, I think that you know McCain. The uh, I, I don't spend a ton of time on the McCain phenomenon in the book, because, in part because well, because it's already stuffed with a lot of characters, but yeah. in part because the 
because the McCain phenomenon, um, you know, ultimately ended up, you know, being, I, I do think it is, it is an interesting historical phenomenon uh, that uh, in some ways it is a precursor to two different political politicians, um, completely ideologically different politicians, but in part, I think the McCain 2000 campaign, you can, you can see echoes of, of, of Trump's campaign, yes, definitely. uh, in the, in the, in the idea that, you know, we're going to throw the bums out in Washington. I'm going to be the guy who's going to, who's going to talk straight to you, you know, the straight talk express. I mean, uh, you know, some of that straight talk, if you go back and, and, and actually read some of the things that, that John McCain was saying, it, you know, some of it doesn't, uh, d- some of it would, <laughs> would get him canceled today. I, yeah, I have to yeah. say, um, you know, he was, he was very much a uh, kind of a ran on his authenticity um, and, and, and was, you know, kind of captured a lot of people's imaginations because he didn't talk like a, like a politician really was supposed yeah. to. He also though, the other side of John McCain that I think is the precursor to something interesting is, uh, you know, he's also a precursor to Obama. I mean, in the sense that he, what he was able to do was inspire people across political lines and especially independence. Um, ultimately Obama ended up becoming a, uh, an individual who I think it's, it's fair to say was quite, uh, demonized, um, by by the republicans and 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 ultimately you know it's a, it's a little hard to remember now but you know 2008 version of obama was somebody who was able to talk to rural voters one in iowa even though he was a he was a person of color and 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 didn't fit any of the demographic kind of boxes that you'd imagine uh being attractive to to iowa voters um you know he had that era of like a fresh perspective and I, you know somebody who who could inspire people across political lines it's the thing that john mccain had in that version of john mccain and the 2000 version of john mccain is that he was somebody that people wanted to vote for you know he was somebody that people were excited about voting for the people who liked him like you really liked yeah him. you know they it wasn't that they they were voting out of anger, like as they were with Trump, although I guess it's fair to say there are some people who really, really love Trump. But, but in many cases, you know, Trump voters are, are, are not so much enamored of Trump, but, but really just, you know, kind of want to blow up the whole system, I think. Um, you know, in, in, in the case of Joe Biden, you know, or, or Hillary Clinton for that matter, uh, people of uh, Democrats, uh, like them, respect them, perhaps they don't necessarily feel a kind of, warm and fuzzy feeling you know when about yeah. about 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 them um john mccain had that kind of had that kind of special glow to him especially in that year he was just somebody whose character was so uh you know his his character his story as a as a war hero as a prisoner of war was so uh captivating to so many people across uh political lines i think i think Frankly, you know, John McCain, one, one of the great counterfactuals is, you know, what would have happened if Al Gore had had uh, had 
had picked John McCain as his running yeah. mate. There were some people who thought that maybe he might do that. There's some people who wanted him to run run for the Reform Party nomination. There's some evidence that the McCain seriously considered it running as a third party candidate that year. Uh, you know, he decided to do neither um, because he thought that he probably had a future in the Republican Party, and of course he did. Um, so, so, so you know, he was the the nominee in 2008. So it wasn't like. Uh, you know, he made the wrong decision there, but it would have been interesting to see what a what a you know what a kind of third party fusion candidacy in in two thousand would have looked like. So before we we get to that that presidential election in Florida and the recount of that, the, the other big thread that runs through the book. Well, there are a lot. There's so much going on in, in the book. It's almost, I, I should say to listeners that we're, we're only just scratching the surface. It's just amazing all that you mentioned, all the characters and, and things and events. And, and definitely, I want to emphasize that we're only getting just a tiny bit of the, the richness in this book. But I, I wanted to talk about one other thread that runs through this, and this is terrorism, because I think most Americans would say, well, terrorism, that's like a, a 9-11, so that's, you know, after 2000. But throughout the book, you, I think, pretty clearly make make an argument that, that really the precursor to that, the build up to that, we could see this happening uh, or, or not, unfortunately, in 2000. And, and there's, a, there's a lot going on here, but could you maybe hit what what you see as sort of some of the key developments uh, with with that in, in the year two thousand? Well, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning my timeline that you know, and this is like a literal timeline that I that I is a giant piece of paper that I tacked to the wall in my office uh, and and put uh, a, you know sort of significant dates on post it notes and kind of spread it out somewhat, um, you know. <laughs> Somewhat maniacally across <laughs> across my office wall, so people would kind of come up and be like, "Oh, your book seems very uh, seems very elaborate here." <laughs> uh, sort of uh, sort of make, make I got a lot of homeland jokes, but yeah. um, so uh, you know, on the subject of homeland, I mean, I think that uh, you know the, the terrorism subplot of the book uh, stretches throughout that year, and it, it begins on the same day that the Elyon uh, subplot does on the, on that day. Thanksgiving Day, November 25th, 1999, uh, a young man named uh, Zia Jara uh, got on a plane in Germany and flew to Istanbul and ultimately ended up in Afghanistan. And he was the first of four members of a, of a group of uh, devout young uh, Muslims living in Germany, living in Hamburg, that uh, went to, to Afghanistan to the, the camps that uh, were. Uh, Operated by Osama bin Laden in that year, uh, I think it's interesting. You know, one of I think one of the things that I learned in the course of doing this book is, you know, we we tend to we tend to view events like nine eleven through this kind of lens of um, you know historic inevitability uh, and to to basically not uh, not sort of think about how weird and contingent history actually is one of the most interesting things i found was that these four men four young men from hamburg apparently sort of show up in afghanistan nobody sent them they kind of sent themselves to show up in afghanistan uh during ramadan at the end of 1999 as these 
as these millennium celebrations are going on around the world, uh, Al Qaeda is is basically trying to come up with an with an attack to coincide with the millennium that would kind of you know uh, get some attention. Osama bin Laden was really obsessed with branding and with sort of building you know his uh, what we now we would now think of him as like as as you know, as an influencer, uh, yeah. you know, he was obviously an evil influencer, uh-huh. but you know, he, he, he was very obsessed with these ideas of sort of how do you, how do you inspire people? And one of the ways that he inspired people was with these very photogenic attacks. Um, he tried to pull a bunch off around the millennium, uh, you know, through his various affiliate organizations in different places. And the, the best, the best that they managed to do was to, uh, uh, try to, uh, get a, a, a skiff filled with explosives uh, to uh, blow up next to an American warship in Yemen, but the skiff got uh, stuck in the on the sand on the beach, and the and the terrorists abandoned it uh, there. Ultimately, the millennium went off without a hitch, uh, in part because the American uh, CIA and FBI and other organizations really mobilized, recognizing that there was. A, a potential threat that Al Qaeda wanted to strike. Uh, so, so, so they were man- able to head all this off. Meanwhile, you know, Osama bin Laden, very disappointed that, about this, uh, is introduced to a group, this group of four young men, uh, and he says, "You know, I have a another plan that I've been wanting to do for a while, uh, and we we just they, they hadn't thought it was practical, but uh, but but in." You know, around Halloween of 1999, an Egypt air pilot uh, leaving from JFK had deliberately crashed his plane into the ocean uh, off of uh, off of off of New York, off of off of Long Island, and um, and this had, had sort of inspired Osama bin Laden to say, like, oh, maybe we can pull this plane's operation off. So he enlisted these four individuals uh, and said, you know, here's here's a plan doesn't really tell anybody else hardly even knows these guys uh the the, the four of them including muhammad atta um go back to germany and they are essentially the masterminds of the plot uh what while osama and khalid sheikh muhammad uh were you know sort of instrumental in coming up with the concept the implementers of it were really the pilots uh who piloted those those four planes on on september 11th I follow them through the year 2000 because after leaving Afghanistan, fairly quickly afterwards, they uh, make a make a sort of search to figure out where the best place to learn how to fly is. None of them know how to fly, uh, so they uh, they they figure out that the best place in the entire world to figure to learn how to fly airplanes is. Florida, uh, in part because of all the reasons that we, the thing, things that we recognize about Florida, uh, good and bad. You know, great weather, lots of sun, lots of lots of uh, ability to kind of fly year round, and also not too many regulations. It's a sort of place where you know one of the people who who uh, who ran one of the flight schools that they trained at told me, you know, renting a plane is cheaper than renting a jet ski in Florida. Uh, so they. So they went and uh, rented Cessnas, uh, learned how to fly, ultimately got their commercial pilot's licenses. But during this whole roughly 18-month period or so between the summer of 2000 and 9-11 itself, 
they were living in Florida almost constantly, uh, living among us here in the United States, going to Walmart, uh, you know, hanging out with the, their fellow students, uh, really kind of living their lives like Americans a little bit, you know, fish out of water, but, but nonetheless, watching what's going on, among other things, watching the presidential campaign, because the presidential campaign is kind of coming to them in Florida, quite literally, in some cases, uh, they were, you know, a couple of them, Muhammad Atta and Amaron al-Shehi, were, were training for a time at, a, at an airport in Sarasota, which happened to be a place where a lot of the campaign rallies were held. So they were, they were actually physically present, it appears, uh, likely they were physically present for rallies that Bush and Gore had uh, at at this airport in Sarasota, were able to kind of watch the Americans, uh, you know, skirmish over who their next president was going to be, knowing all the while that they were uh, plotting an event that was going to fundamentally change the nature of that presidency and of American power in general. So for the for the final final event, I guess that if you will, and of course we're we're in Florida again, and that's a thread that runs all the way through the book, right? The two thousand election, which I, I call it the unlikely crucible of the future. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, it's it's hard to know even where to begin. Uh, living through it was just so bizarre because there was so much weirdness uh, around this election. You do a great job going into all the details in the book, and and I think that while people know, listeners, I'm sure know that it was an incredibly close election. Some of those details that that surround it, just even reading, remembering through your through your writing, just make me just go, wow. Uh, so I, what of all the weirdness and awfulness, what would you say stands out the most to you? And, and how do you kind of look at it, contextualize it? Well, I, you know, this is one of those so Bush, we haven't really talked about Bush and Gore as characters, but it's kind of interesting because uh, Al Gore, you know, as a first of all, I think the portrait of, of George W. Bush in the book is is uh, will, will make a lot of readers think again about about George W. Bush in this in this pre nine eleven period. He was really kind of a very different kind of politician in terms of how he presented himself to the public. Uh, sort of a genial, convivial fellow uh, that uh, wasn't going to shake things up too much. Um, Al Gore, on the other hand, was you know stiff, intellectual, intellectual to a degree that it's a little hard to fathom now <laughs> that he ever made it as far in politics as as he did. You know, he, he talked about things that were considered you know just sort of politically beyond the pale at the time, like in you know phasing out the internal combustion engine, which, you know, frankly would have been a good idea, uh, but, 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 but sort of fell by the wayside, obviously, as a result of the election. Um, he, you know, Gore, you know, so I think that one of the things that's interesting about Gore also is that he was interested in all sorts of intellectual ideas. One of them is this idea of chaos theory. Uh, so, you know, he, and apparently in the midst of the, of the election, uh, this incredibly close election decided by 537 votes, just this incredibly infinitesimally tiny margin in the in the context of six million votes cast in Florida or, you know, hundreds of millions of votes cast across the United States. Uh, Al Gore talked about, you know, 
chaos theory with his advisors and, and sort of this idea that, you know, butterfly flapped its wings and, in in the Amazon and, and, and there's a, there's a, there's, there's a hurricane in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, this idea of you know, small patterns in the universe having outward ripples that, that, that have huge effects on, on, on history. Uh, so, you know, I think that this idea of, you know, th- this, uh, this idea is, is sort of very central to, to my book. Um, you know, the, uh, this idea that, that all of these little tiny, uh, blips, uh, you know, circumstances, random events that happen, uh, end up having these very consequential effects. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, one good example of it is, um, uh, ironically, what's called the butterfly ballot. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. butterfly ballot was, was as, 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 well, this is like another one of those things where anyone who's who's our age roughly will 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 laugh with immediate recognition yeah. uh-huh. and everyone who's everyone who's who's sort of like millennial and younger will stare at you blankly and uh, sort of yeah. have no idea what you're talking yeah. about but but the um but the butterfly ballot was was for those those of your listeners who don't know uh was was a, a basically a paper ballot uh used in one county in Florida Palm Beach County enormous county in, uh, in, in South Florida and was, was basically laid out on two facing pages in order to fit all the third party candidates for president onto the, onto, you know, onto the ballot. And it was designed in such a way that it was arguably deceptive. Um, at least many, uh, Gore voters, elderly Gore voters, uh, you know, uh, later on claim that, you know, mistakenly, they had lined up their ballot incorrectly and have voted for the, the person on line two instead of Al Gore, who was on line three. The candidate on line two, ironically, if in a great historical irony, was was none other than the aforementioned Pat Buchanan. Uh, so, so many, you know, elderly Jewish Democratic voters in Palm Beach <laughs> yeah. ended up voting inadvertently for the guy that Donald Trump called a Hitler lover, um, and uh, that was, of course. Caused a great deal of um, uh, consternation in uh, in in Palm Beach at that time. Palm Beach became this you know incredibly uh, became the the center central place in which this recount battle, this battle to get many votes that were discarded, not just the not just the butterfly ballot votes, but but uh, but also votes that you know because of faulty technology and not registered to vote for president we you know it's it's complex and we don't have time to get into all of it but there for a variety of technical reasons there were a, you know a, an astonishingly large number of votes that weren't recorded in that year something like 170,000 uh in Florida that were were invalidated for one reason or another um and many of them were were in Palm Beach County Palm Beach became the kind of like the center of the of the recount battle. So I, I say in the book, you know, uh, you know, to go back to the butterfly analogy, the chaos theory, butterfly analogy, you know, butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon and a hurricane, you know, hurricane, uh, you know, there's a hurricane in Texas or, you know, butterfly ballot flaps in Palm Beach County and bombs fall in Iraq. Uh, it's really, you know, uh, it's really amazing the degree to which history might have been different in any number of ways had had a, just a tiny tiny fraction of these votes uh many of which we can presume based on their geographical distribution uh many of these uh, invalidated votes ended up being 
being uh, salvaged and and counted, uh, you know, and Al Gore had been elected president, you know, history would have been would have been very, very, very different. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you uh, you as a journalist, of course, you focus on the present in your in your journalistic work, but you spent. For this book, what uh, you mentioned, you're kind of you're bored. You, you spent an awful lot of time going back and, and taking a look at, you know, two decades, a little more than two decades ago. And so I, I'm very curious to kind of tie things up here. W- what sort of perspective that that really intensive look back at 2000 gave you, you know, in the sense of what sort of things do you now see that were there in 2000 that became you know, prominent in 2000 and how they affect politics and culture in the United States in, you know, the year 2022? Well, I mean, I think the biggest one, you know, that we haven't talked about so far is the, is the, the rise of populism and the advent of what I kind of call conspiracy theory thinking. There's, there's a, a character in the book that I kind of follow throughout the book named Chuck Carter, who's an AM talk radio host, who's a, uh, you know, he was a Y2K uh, uh, doomsayer, but he also was a doomsayer about a lot of other things, including some things that ended up being right. Uh, for instance, you know, pandemics, uh, you, you know, he warned about Vladimir Putin uh, early on. He he was was very, very concerned about China and tra- U.S. trade policy and U.S. trade deficits ultimately weakening American manufacturing and what the consequences for that would be uh, within the American electorate. Uh, so he was sort of somebody we recognize today as a, as, as somebody who was a Trump, uh, Trump voter, you know, Trumper. Uh, but, but in that time period is kind of considered really far outside the mainstream. Uh, he was, a you know, also a conspiracy theorist. Uh, he was somebody that, you know, he, he he thought in a way that it is now very familiar and at that time was considered very, very marginal in, in politics. So I think the biggest thing that you, know, you look back on is how different, how the, the advent of the sort of unfiltered media culture, un, unfiltered social media has really changed things, has changed the way people think, has changed the way information is assimilated into the political culture, has changed the way uh, we all kind of get, get super preoccupied with, with one thing and have no attention span for, for, for other <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that, um, you know, we see that with with important things like you know Ukraine is dominating the news right now, but we also see it with you know all kinds of trivial matters that that really aren't aren't necess- that, that come along and 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 really aren't all that important, but ultimately for for reasons no one can quite comprehend, end up uh, dominating everyone's conversation and everyone's minds for a little while. So that's really like the major. I'd say that's that that was a, that's sort of the major difference I noticed between then and now. The, the the thing that was really kind of just starting to come into being then, and 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 was likely to really profoundly change the world. Uh, I I do want to end on one one note though, as we're, if we're wrapping up, which is that the other thing that I think is interesting in studying history is that you know we you know you we we've had a kind of little bit of a uh, of a downbeat conversation in the sense that 
you know, and, and the book, of course, is titled The Year That Broke yeah. America, so it's my fault, right? But, yeah. But, 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 but I think that, you know, one thing that, that I think that it's important to note is that you know, things that are broken can also be fixed. Um, you know, broken doesn't mean that things are broken permanently. I do think that, you know, that the, that the fact that we've been there before, the fact that we lived through a time when suddenly in 1989, 1990, 1991, suddenly the world got better for reasons that no one kind of anticipated and that no one really saw coming. All of a sudden, things got better and the economy got better. The world kind of became a, a much more peaceful place for a little while. It was this little idyllic period. And this book is like a fun book. It's about, it's about a time in which the stakes of everything didn't seem so existential. Um, I, I, think, I think maybe there's I, – I still have optimism that there's a way that we can somehow get back to a time when it doesn't seem like every presidential election might be the last presidential election. <laughs> and it doesn't seem as if every foreign policy crisis might be the end of the world. Literally. Um, I, I think that, I think it's, I, I think that it may be hard for us to see it now because, you know, one of the things that's, kind of implicit in this book is it it's really hard for you to see it when you're in it but but i think that i think that you know i think that one of the things that i think is implicit in this book is that even if it's hard to see how the story ends happily that doesn't mean that we can't work to make it end better Amen. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I always like to end on an optimistic note. I'm glad you were able to bring us around to that. And as I said, it's just a, a fascinating, fantastic book. I just give it my highest recommendation. So much in there. And uh, Andrew Rice, it's been a pleasure talking with you about it today. Yeah, this has been really fun. And, I, and I'm really glad that you asked me some questions that weren't necessarily, that, that, were, that were sort of like about other parts of the year 2000, because there is so much there, even more than the, is in the book. And I, I really enjoyed having the conversation. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.